We're working through the book, uh, the, the beginning of the book of uh, Genesis. We're not going to get through it in case you haven't figured that out. Um, we're starting chapter 2 tonight. We've been, what I said, you know, the beginning week, my clever little tool to make everybody panic and feel like I'm organized. My goal is for y'all to have an existential crisis the first couple of weeks. Um, and the reason why is because you can't, you can't read the beginning of Genesis and that not happen. If, if that's not happening, you're really not reading it in any meaningful way because what's happening is a world is being described, essentially reality is being described starting from the very beginning. And an existential crisis is when we question kind of everything we believe and kind of like, oh my gosh, is it all true? Is it worthwhile? To open up the book of Genesis and it starts within the beginning, that means it's going back to our very fundamental structures of reality and redefining them for us. You can't really, you're not reading Genesis well if it's not redefining reality for you. And so the first couple of weeks... We've looked at it, and we've asked, uh, we've, we've kind of sought to see how it builds an understanding of, like, fundamental foundational structures of what it actually just means to simply exist, right? The first week was, what is creation? Why is there something and not nothing? Why is it here? And what we saw is that uh, we found that creation is a living, breathing, moving piece of art, and it's made for the purpose that every true, honest, good um, artist makes art, which is to delight in. Um, and last week we said, what are people for? Because we obviously occupy a specific place in creation, and we found that we are God's creation as well, but we are also his, kind of his under-shepherds. We are part of his handiwork, but we're given the high calling of actually being his, repre- his representation of himself to creation, and we've been given the high task then of caring for his handiwork, for his creation. Our spiritual task, our initial spiritual task, was to work. The fundamental structure that we're looking at this week is time. And that sounds like we're about to have a philosophy lecture, but we're actually not. Um, is there a rhythm to creation? Is there a rhythm to reality? What is it? Does it have shape? How are we to think about it and to live in it? And that sounds abstract, but actually this is going to be one of the most practical sermons you ever hear in IUF. They're very tangible, practical ways we address this issue. Because we're going to understand how time is actually intended to be structured in such a way that allows humanity to flourish. God actually set up time where if you followed his rhythm for creation, humanity flourishes and, and uh, kind of grows into its full potential. And it's in the very beginning where God's addressing and defining fundamental structures of reality that he develops an understanding of rhythm of creation. And so we're going to read Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, and then we're also going to read from the Ten Commandments because they're also... Uh, Within the same law that tells people to not murder and to not steal and to not lie and to not worship idols, God also places alongside of all of those laws the law to rest. It is a moral, actual law. It's not a recommendation. Uh, And he sees it as important as all of those. And actually, if you read the rest of Exodus, you'll be surprised the kind of punishments that people receive for not observing um, the Sabbath. This is Genesis 2, 1 through 3. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. He created his, finished his work of creation. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. From Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the day and made it holy. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray that he would teach us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to submit to your word and to be redefined by your word. Um, We all have a momentum in all of our life, the way that we're living, a rhythm that we're living, that we use to cope with the difficulties of life. I pray we would allow you to interrupt us. Interrupt us, Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the things Elizabeth and I are learning as parents, and y'all, hopefully we'll have this experience one day, uh, you never really understand how foolish, some of you girls actually already get this because you interact with kids, you never really understand how foolish you were as a child until you have children or until you're interacting with children and you're an adult. Um, one of the most kind of like amusing and frustrating aspects to our five-year-olds and three-year-olds um, is that they presume to understand the world better than Elizabeth and I. And, uh, and that's really what most of our conflict with our children is about, is uh, they presume to understand the structures of a household, the rhythm of life, what it means to be human, what it means to be a little girl, better than we do. I love my children. I hope they develop an independent spirit. But at this point in time, I know more about them than they know about themselves and what's better for them than they know. And one of the things that happens in our house often is um, we try to give them good things and they think they know better than us and refuse to receive good things. One of the things that kind of continually kind of confuses Elizabeth and I is uh, we're periodically introducing new food into our diet. Uh, what you do with little kids they start off with this nasty stuff and slowly they get to eat more and more good stuff and uh we've been trying to introduce macaroni and cheese for a year now and like <laughs> macro besides bacon there's no more universally loved food than macaroni and cheese we can all agree on macaroni and cheese except for my children right they're three and five years old they've never tasted it and they look at it and they're i don't want that i don't like that you know and you remember having these conversations with the parents i did too you know I don't like that, and you've never tasted it. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, we all did that. Um, They trust their... (laughs) I still feel that way about mushrooms, but (laughs) I've never had one. I'm confident I don't like them. Um, Our children trust their own estimation about reality more than they trust me. See, fundamentally, it's actually a trust issue. What they've decided is my five-year-old mind is better deciding what I like than your 31-year-old mind. And the truth of the matter is, I actually know what they like better than they do. That'll change at some point, but right now, I actually know what food they like better than they'll actually know. It's a trust issue. They think they know better than me. They trust their own opinions more than they trust my opinion or Elizabeth's opinion. 
The Sabbath is the same thing. The Sabbath actually is fundamentally for us. The reason it's confusing is because it's a trust issue. Our fundamental disconnect with it, the Sabbath is a weird word that makes us all a little bit uncomfortable. Um, Our fundamental disconnect with it is how little, has to do with how little we actually believe God when he explains what we were made for and how we're to live. We look at him the same way that my three-year-olds and five-year-olds look at me and say, no, 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 I understand how to do this better. And he's a patient parent. He's much more patient than me. So when I say the term Sabbath, it's this weird, like, obtuse idea. And it kind of, it bugs us, it makes us uncomfortable, and we all feel a little bit guilty when people say church or Sabbath or anything like that. And we're vaguely aware that there's this day that's on the tail end of the weekend after we get to do the fun stuff of the weekend that's supposed to be different. And um, we go to this building that lays empty for six days, and then we sing time, we spend time singing songs with people that we don't know, and then we hear somebody talk about something he thinks is really important. And basically, what we're hoping for in church is that at some point, somebody up front will say something humorous. That's like a good church service, right? <laughs> oh, he made me laugh. You know, <laughs> the church was great today. Um, and then we finally get to the end of the service, benediction uh, comes, and then finally we can get started with our day, right? So either the responsibility that we were holding off that was killing us so it finally comes barreling down on us, or finally the day, the day of fun can finally start. Um, we don't understand the Sabbath. It's awkward. We don't know how to enjoy it. And you see here, there's a pattern, there's a rhythm to life that God gives us, and you can't actually understand the Sabbath, and you can't understand rest apart from work. In the command, in the Ten Commandments, when we're called to set the Sabbath apart and keep it holy, as he explains the command, the first thing he says is, you shall work for six days. And so we have to actually recover as a notion of work, which we've kind of talked about for the last two weeks, in order to recover a notion of rest. And our notion of work is broken right now because mainly the way we think about work is work is something you do in order to purchase rest, right? It's something you do to get through so you can acquire enough money or enough whatever it takes to finally purchase some leisure. And in some respects, it's actually really bad economics. You spend 35, 40, 50, 60, 70, some people 80 hours a week in order to purchase, you know, 15 hours of leisure on the weekend. The trade-off there is pretty low. But that's the way we normally think about work. It's actually what we use to purchase leisure. Um, And our our notion for leisure, our notion for rest, is to escape responsibility. That's what we think rest is. Rest, there's a right way in which we implicitly think of it as not working. That's right. That's good. It's biblical. It's what we can learn clearly from the text. But we mainly mainly think of it actually as just this release from responsibility. And there's actually something really right and really wrong about the fact that really Thursday, Friday, Saturday evening have become our Sabbath substitutes. Those are the parts of the week, the end of the week, after our work that we anticipate, right, to rest and relax. But the manner in which we oftentimes approach those is our rest and our relaxation is actually escape. It's not an engagement with anything. It's actually escape. It's running from everything. So we look to certain chemicals. We look to alcohol. I know this is cliche, but that's really what we do. We're going to certain places and we're going to certain experiences so we can actually run from reality. Rest is not an escape from reality. But that's often the way we think about it. One of the things we think about rest, too, is Oftentimes, we actually treat rest like work, right? Exercising. It's work for most of us. It's supposed to be enjoyable. It's supposed to be something you should do for fun. Intramural football should be fun. 
Most people aren't happy when they're not playing intramural football. <laughs> Go out, watch the REF teams, watch me, watch Soren. We're not happy when we're resting, when we're doing fun things. We're really bad at having fun. We're actually not even good at resting. We end up working. The reason why we're upset is because we're working when we're resting. It's supposed to work out. We get all upset and we get uptight and yell at the refs and yell at people on our team and teed up, you know? Um, some of us are trying to control the rhythm, the rhythm of our life real intently. We've got our calendars and it's filled up and you can't plan anything. Oh, you want to have lunch? Okay, I'm free July 7th from 1 to 2.30, but that's about to fill up my next, you know? Some of us are trying to control the rhythms of our life. Others of us are kind of at the mercy um, of just the capricious inclination of our hearts. We're just kind of wandering around, and there is no rhythm, and there's no regularity. And what's interesting is that when our work becomes less productive, when there's no rhythm, we're just thrown around by our own capriciousness, then our work isn't productive, and our rest isn't restful. This is the point of this passage. This is how I want you to define rest. Rest is trusting in the rhythm that God gave to creation. Rest is trusting in the rhythm that God gave to creation. To take all our notions of work and rest and submit them to the word and say, maybe since you created creation, you understand it better than we do. Rest is very active. It's very practical. It's very applicable. This is going to be the most practical RUF sermon you ever hear. And it's certainly something that goes on also in the inside. But it's also very visible on the outside. Rest is trusting in the rhythm that God gave to creation. And the rhythm is simple and it's very clear. You work for six days and you rest for one. I mean, that's the application of the sermon. We could pray and close right now and y'all could all go to the basketball game and think I was the greatest campus minister ever, but we're not. Um, (laughs) But that's really it. That's the application of the sermon. Work for six days and rest for one. But to begin to explore it, you see two points in your outline. I want to see, first of all, that this understanding of work and rest, the understanding of this rhythm, is grounded in actually God's own behavior. That He actually demonstrates this rhythm or this pattern for time that He calls us to. And we read it. Heavens and the earth were finished. God labored for six days, and all the hosts of them were finished. Everything was done. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. He rested on the seventh day. And so we get from Exodus uh, 20, six days you shall labor and do all your work. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. He explains a little bit more the application of it, but the 11 is the explanation of why. Why? Because in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth and sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. This rhythm is actually a rhythm that is lived out by God. It's, God. it's a God-demonstrated rhythm. And the question arises, and it's an appropriate question, why did God have to rest? Um, the design of the Sabbath is rooted in His behavior and His character. And in order to actually answer the question of why He had to rest, we have to understand, first of all, that rest begins with an understanding of work. God doesn't merely create just to create. It's not an arbitrary decision. It has a purpose. Um, he creates in order to delight in his creation. That's what we said the first week. And he enjoys it every day, and we see him do that every day, that he looks at what he created and he sees that it's good, and he takes delight in it. But on the seventh day, what is not pictured is that God finishes his work, turns around, leaves it behind, and sits in a lazy chair. That's not what's pictured. 
His rest is a rest that is actually, it's a full rest. It's a rest of achievement. It's a rest of delight. It's a rest, which essentially is a delight in the pleasure and in the work done. It is an artist treasuring his handiwork when it's done. It's a director watching his movie completed for the first time. It's a musician listening to your recording once it's complete. The notion of rest given here is not merely this kind of empty, vacuous sense of mindlessly doing nothing. When he says language, God blessed the day and he made it holy because on that day God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The day is a blessing and it's holy because what he's doing is he's delighting in his handiwork. It's the rest of achievement. It's a full and rich rest. And you see, when we begin to bring that into our own lives and the impact of that in our own lives, this is the first thing we have to say. For a lot of us, the main reason we actually don't understand Sunday, um, the reason we don't understand is actually because we don't work. Um, one of the reasons that there's no sweet rest for you on Sunday, that it's not a delight, and you've got to be honest with yourself about this, um, but you know it's true. Most of you are cramming about two and a half days of work into six. I know a lot of people aren't. I know there are people in here working hard, but several of y'all are cramming about two and a half days of work into six days. The Sabbath doesn't make sense when you do that. It will never make sense when you do that. To think you can appreciate and understand and love the church and the gathering of God's people when you're doing two and a half days of work in six days, it will never happen ever in your lifetime. It just won't. You can't nourish and grow in your understanding of gathering the Lord's people if that's the way you're going to approach the rhythm of creation. You're choosing to say, God, understands you made it, but I've got a better rhythm. You have no anticipation of rest because you're actually lazy. And when you do rest, your rest is not rich, full rest that comes with the ceasing of strenuous labor. It's the lazy version of rest, which is not rest. It's merely an empty lack of activity that's just kind of tacked on to the other four days of not doing anything. And this is my challenge to you. This is the meanest I'll get. This is kind of for the guys. I'm kind of picking on the guys here. Girls, y'all are overworking. You need Sabbath rest. Guys, y'all are underworking and you need Sabbath rest. I know there's a little bit of crossover between the genders, but this is kind of down gender lines. Um, guys, stop acting like boys and act like men and work. Never going to be this mean again in a large group. This is it. Stop acting like boys, y'all. Stop acting like boys and work. So what it means to be a man. Girls, if you want to find a guy that you can trust, who will love you, who loves Jesus and will care for your children for years, not just in the first couple of warm, fuzzy moments of having children, look for a guy that works for six days and rests in the Lord on the seventh. I would say that's a clear marker of spiritual maturity. To first begin to grasp the rhythm of life, we have to take work seriously. To glorify God in your work is not... I don't know what it means when people point upward when they achieve something. Um, I don't think that's what it means to glorify God. Glorifying God is to do it, to do it honestly, to do it kindly, to approach your work with grace and compassion, to be patient and to work hard and to do it well. That's what it means to glorify God in your work. That's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what it means to serve the kingdom of God. Even before sin entered into the world, that's what it meant to glorify God, is to labor well. But you see, our work, while it's a task given to us, it's not supposed to define us. 
And that's kind of the other end of the spectrum that we have to war against. And for that reason, God calls us to Sabbath. And he calls us to rest. Here's the way, I love the way Eugene Peterson explains it. He's probably not a better writer on Sabbath. If there is no Sabbath, no regular commanded, not working, not talking, we soon become totally absorbed in what we are doing and saying. And God's work is either forgotten or marginalized. When we work, we are most godlike in a right way, but it also means that it's in our work that it's easiest for us to develop God pretensions. Unsabbathed, our work becomes the entire context in which we define our lives. We lose a consciousness of God. We lose awareness of God. We lose sightings of resurrection. We lose the capacity to sing, this is my Father's world, and we end up instead chirping little self-centered ditties about what we're doing and what we are feeling. To understand rest, the first thing we have to do is work, and we see that modeled by God. But I want to explore more what it means to rest, and really resting and understanding the Sabbath is a God-trusting rhythm. What actually is, it actually is a demonstration of trusting in God. That's what Sabbath is. And the first thing that happens in our rest is it recenters us. It is a blessing from God that recenters us. God blesses the Sabbath, and his blessing is that he sets it apart. To bless it and make it holy, that, that's the word for set apart. He doesn't just do that. He does it for a purpose. He sets it apart for a purpose. And what's the reason that he sets it apart? In Exodus 31, 12, where we see the Sabbath kind of more uh, explained more fully, we're actually told that the Sabbath is a sign of God's covenant. Keeping the Sabbath was a sign, right? Signs remind us of realities that are dangerous for us to forget. That's what signs are. A stop sign is something that reminds you of a reality that's dangerous for you to forget. We use signs every day. In Israel, the Sabbath was a sign. He was saying once a week, one out of six days, set that aside and let me remind you of who you are in me. The Sabbath day was a day of sacred assembly in Leviticus 23. All the feasts are talked about in the gathering of the Lord's people. They gathered together on the the Sabbath and God rehearsed all the different things he did for his people. And he helped them remember who he was and who they are. He re-centered them on God and what God has done in their behalf. I love the way Isaiah talks about it in Isaiah 58. If you turn back from your work on the Sabbath, from doing your business on my holy day, and call the Sabbath instead a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways and seeking your own pleasure, talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Part of what the Sabbath does is it recenters us. It keeps us from defining ourselves by our work. It's not merely a ceasing from work, it's ceasing from our labor so that we can so that we can combat the temptation to be defined and be secured and find our meaning and purpose in our work alone. Work is good, and it's part of the natural creational rhythm that we have as humans. But that doesn't mean that we are our work. And we live in a culture where we are defined by our work, because this is how you meet people and get to know people, right? Right now, when you meet people, there are two questions. What's your name? What's your major? When you graduate from college, it's what's your name? What do you do? That's very revealing about our culture. 
Your fundamental identity is what you do, your labor. That's why it's the first question we ask. You'll be gauged whether or not you're a failure or success as a person in this world according to how, perform, how well you perform your labor. Your work is your justification for your existence. The Sabbath recenters us and it draws us out of that. It says to us, you are not your work. Your work is a task that God has given us, but who we are is the children of God. And this day, you cease from your labor so you won't be defined by it. And you let this weird day that you kind of don't understand where you lay your labor down be a day that signifies God's covenant with you. And that means like the rainbow, and that means like baptism, and like communion. When you open your eyes that morning, you let God spend the day recounting His faithfulness to you, His mercies to you, His love for you, His compassion to you as you gather with His people. The Sabbath re-centers us on who we really are and reacquaints us with the Lord and His promises. And as cheesy as it sounds, this is what the Sabbath is. It's a date. Elizabeth and I rightfully co-labor in our household with our children. It is hard work. It is good, and we should work hard. We don't, I don't, I'm, it's the hardest work I've ever done. I still feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, y'all have been in households, some of you have grown up in households where that's all your parents ever did where they co-labored and they co-labored and they co-labored and maybe as you've kind of come of age, you realize all they are now is co-workers. What Elizabeth and I have to do for the sake of our marriage is every now and then we have to say no to our house, no to our yard, no to our children, and no to you and go on a date. Our labor is appropriate and right. Our labor without a date will destroy us. The Sabbath recenters us. The Sabbath is God saying every seventh day, Come, let me wash you again with my love and with my promises. It recenters us, but it's also rest. If actually, that's what the word Sabbath means. It is rest. It's the Hebrew word for the cessation from work. And for some of us, that sounds scary. Stopping from work, actually laying it aside, setting aside what you do for six days. Your students, that's your calling, that's your work at this point in time. This is setting aside your labors as a student one day a week. And as soon as I say that, some of you are thinking, if I really actually didn't study at all on Sunday, I'm not going to get an A. If I don't get an A, I'm not going to get into grad school. If I don't get into grad school, I'm not going to get the job I want. You know, I'm not going to get into the nursing program, whatever it is. And you immediately can quickly articulate a whole list of dire anxiety-producing consequences of how your life's going to fall apart if you don't study on Sunday, Right? It's not very hard to kind of get that list going, is it? And that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Your labor is never actually going to give you what you want from it. You can never purchase rest from it. It's taking the rest that God's already given you. It's already taking that from you. If you want to buy rest with it, rest will be precisely what you never get. Sabbath rest is Jesus saying, I am your life. I give rest. The very thing that you can't imagine putting down, put it down and gather with my people. And all the, yeah, I know you're saying it sounds good, but seriously, what about? Or, but seriously, I have to take care of this. That's exactly what Jesus calls you to put down on Sunday. All the really, okay, yeah, but seriously, those are the ones. Your work on the Sabbath 
is unbelief that God blesses us by grace. And that means that, in fact, our belief is the exact opposite, that we believe we are blessed not by God's grace, but by our work. So we must do our work, right? Sabbath rest is God saying, don't you see it's not by your work that you're blessed. It's by my grace that you are blessed. So rest. The the Sabbath day is not this trite. This is the way we feel about it. I get it. I feel this way too. It's not this trite day with these kind of burdensome observances that are guilt-driven. That's legalistic religion that Jesus hates and preaches against. And that's why he says in Mark 2.27, when people question him on the Sabbath because they're doing things that the Jewish rabbis listed, the, all these different things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Oh, you're not keeping the Sabbath if, you're, um, if you're, they were actually picking uh, seeds in the field and eating them. And Jesus said, no, no, you don't understand. The Sabbath was made for you. You weren't made for the Sabbath. It was made for you. It's a gift God has given you. It's a command. The command to rest is for you. And what it is, we've all maybe probably been in circumstances where we've seen somebody working so tirelessly and so hard that just working themselves into a tizzy, and you realize that actually the gracious and kind thing to do is firmly tell them to stop. You give them a command out of love and out of grace. That Sabbath is the command to stop, stop, relax. God calls you to rest. He calls you to a weekly holiday, actually, to lay down your labor and relax and see that your work does not define you. Your work does not bless you. God does. The Sabbath recenters us and it gives us rest. The Sabbath is also receiving. Sometimes I want my children's attention, and sometimes at night they're reading a book, they're goofing off, they're doing different things that are fun and delightful. And I tell them to stop and I call them to myself. And the reason I call them to myself is because I want to hug them because I want to love them, or because I've walked in the door and I want to give them a treat that I have for them. And what it requires is they cease from doing what they've done and come to me and receive good things from their Father. That's what the Sabbath is. When we talk about the Sabbath again, we have this list of all the things that you're not supposed to do. You know, all fresh, oh, I don't know, can we eat out or not on the Sabbath? Oh my gosh, I remember eating the Sabbath and I don't even know it because I'm eating out. You know, what if they don't have waiters at the restaurant? You know, like... That's how we think about the Sabbath. Those are most of our conversations about the Sabbath. The first word that comes to mind, the first emotion that comes to mind when I say church, everybody feels guilty, right? I feel guilty too because I don't want to go to church on Sundays oftentimes. But if it was this thing, it's because we think it's this thing that we're supposed to do in order to make God happy. Choosing not to gather with the Lord's people on the Lord's day is the choice to not receive blessing from the Lord. The reason they're actually called church services is not because you're serving the Lord. That's actually not what's being referenced when we talk about going to a service. It's actually because the primary actor and the primary servant in our gathering is actually the Lord. Our posture in worship is that of an expectant recipient of God's blessing. He first calls us into worship. And when he does, we respond, entering into worship. And then he calls us to confession of sin. He initiates, and then we respond. And we receive assurance from him. And we sing in response. He washes us with his word. He reaffirms us with his word. He offers grace and mercy with his word. Sometimes he convicts us with his word. He convinces us of his grace with his word. 
And then he gives us bread and wine. God does drama in worship, by the way. Some people think, oh, oh, should we have drama in worship? I don't really know. Jesus actually instituted drama in worship. He said, when you gather, take this bread, break it, and eat it. And this bread signifies my body. And just like this bread is broken, so is my body broken. And just like this bread nourishes you, so I give you life. And so take this wine. And just like this wine is poured out for you, my blood was poured out for you in the place of justice that you deserve to be. Drink it. Be nourished by it. And we respond in prayer and in praise. The church is not you doing something for God. Gathering for worship is God doing something for you. Our posture is that of a recipient who responds in gratitude. That's what our songs are. Don't feel guilty about not going to church. Seriously. If anything, you should feel left out. Come and join us again on this Sabbath because I need to remember again. And Elizabeth needs to remember again, and you need to remember again. We need to lay down our labor and be recentered on Jesus and rest in Jesus and receive from Jesus and lastly rejoice in Jesus. The Sabbath is a day of rejoicing. When we've wrongly understood it and we've abandoned God, the God-created rhythm for creation and to find ourselves either by our work or by our laziness, then rejoicing is the last thing that we think of when we think of Sabbath. But if we engage Scripture, if we trust God in the way He's talked about the rhythm of creation, it's the best day of the week. If you're familiar with the Bible, with our calendar, you might notice that Saturday is the seventh day. It's the seventh day of the week, but there was this cataclysmic event that occurred in the New Testament. And all of a sudden, the God-man was murdered on the cross on a Friday. And he came back from the dead. He was resurrected from the dead on Sunday. The first day of the week, he rose again. And that's the first day of new creation. Why? He's the beginning of new creation. And we gather on Sunday and celebrate the new work of God's new creation Jesus is the beginning of new creation, of the restored creation. He was the firstborn from the dead. He took our sins to the cross. He bared the sins of the broken creation that we broke. He bared our sins. And in his love and mercy, he bore them, and he bore them not for religious people, and he didn't bore them, uh, he didn't carry them for good people or mature guys or not for moral people. He bore the sins of anybody who would allow him to. It's freely offered. And he took their evil, he took our evil upon his back. And he was punished for it. And he rose again on the third day. He rose again on the first day of new creation, which is Sunday. And so what happens in the New Testament in places in Acts. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, and Revelation 1. We start to see God's people, they start gathering on a different day. They start gathering on the resurrection day. The new creation day. They start to Sabbath on that day. God's going to restore creation. And that resurrection day is our anticipation and our remembrance of that hope. God is going to make everything that is sad come untrue, all of it. The way Keller says it is everything, everything that is bad in your life will turn out for good. Everything that is good in your life will be better. And the best is yet to come. Brothers and sisters, Sunday is practice for the new heavens and the new earth. Don't feel guilty for missing it. The appropriate emotion is actually to feel left out.
for missing it. Thursday and Friday and Saturday nights have been a, become our substitute Sabbaths. The time of the week that we, at the end of the week, we've done our labor and we look forward to it. And you see, even without thinking about it, there's still parts of that rhythm of creation that work in our souls that tell us you're supposed to labor for a while and rest. There's actually something, there's something kind of right in the way we've structured our weeks. But we've created a substitute Sabbath. And notice what our pattern and our goal for that substitute Sabbath is. It's actually to disengage reality. It's actually to escape from reality. Recovering a biblical notion of rest is actually the most real thing that you'll do. It's not a running from the world. It's delving more deeply and richly into the nature of reality. It's an exploration of deep understanding of what's went wrong and what's wrong in us. And it's a powerful rehearsal and remembrance and taste of how God's fixing it. It's not an escape from reality. It's actually headlong rushing into reality and dealing with it and finding hope and resting in it and rejoicing in it. Sunday, rightly understood and kept, will actually be the most real day of the week. But our rest is still going to be elusive and confusing. All right, I'm the preacher man. I'm supposed to get it all straight. It's still elusive and confusing. It's still elusive and confusing. And you're going to walk out of this room the same way I walk out of this room. We're going to walk out of this room like Doug from Up. Are you all familiar with this dog from Up? <laughs> Doug is amazing. He embodies the American spirit um, in this way. He's this dog that has the ability to talk, right? And um, he gets involved in these meaningful conversations with people, helping them kind of on their way in their adventures. And Doug gets interrupted by distractions. He's telling Mr. Fredrickson, you know, about the guy that's trying to capture him, you know, Mr. Fredrickson, whatever. And then a squirrel comes across his field of vision or somewhere, and he loses all sense of everything he was thinking about. And he just goes, squirrel. That's how we're going to walk out of this room. Let's all be honest. I'm going to walk out of this room and go, American Idol. You're going to walk out of this room, and you're going to go, girls or boys or basketball or probably, uh, what's, the, uh, um, what's the stupid video game, the World War II thing? Call of Duty, yes. There will be much. Call of Duty. <laughs> I want to give you helpful, practical advice, and I want to try to take it with you. Um, I know that's how we walk out of these rooms. I know that's how we walk out of uh, meditating upon God's Word. Again, Doug embodies the American spirit, I think. Um, I'm going to give you the advice about the Sabbath that my father gave to my brother about marriage. This is what he told him. Just try it. Um, y'all are young more than likely you have a lot of life ahead of you try it one time seriously get your work done on Saturday just seriously just try it this is I almost even struggle with this application because I'm like am I just you know am I just pushing on their pride I'm not even asking them to follow Jesus I'm just challenging them like I bet you can't even do this (laughs) try it one time Work on Saturday. It's okay to stay up. I'm not saying it's wrong to stay up. Go to bed at a time that allows you to get up, whatever time that is. Do something that's crazy. Counterculture is cool, right? It's cool to be countercultural. Okay, you know what's really countercultural? Go to the early service. That's rebellion, dude. I mean, it is. You want to be rebellious? Well, that's cool. Let's go to the early service this Sunday. Work on Saturday. Go to bed whenever is a time that allows you to get up. Go to the early service. Eat with God's people afterwards. Eat with your friends. 
have fun all afternoon, and go gather with them again and sing and hear about God's promises in the evening and eat with them again. Just try it. I feel confident enough that God's word is true that you will be blessed. Let's pray.